Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scottsdale Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. All of you are joining us uh, in person this morning. And those of you who are watching us from home, we're so glad that you're able to join us as we continue to worship together as a people of God, both together collectively and maybe apart in maybe some small groups with our families or even watch parties. We're so glad that all of you are able to join us today. Like me, probably many of you have been reading a lot in these days because our culture has been going through so many different things and turmoil and questions and and there are a lot of things that we want to know and so I've been reading as well and uh, I read a piece a couple of weeks ago that was really striking and I want to begin this morning by just simply reading what the author had to say here here's how he begins he says the nation is in turmoil it is deeply divided in its politics ideologies and philosophies To add to the political unrest is the vast social unrest. Injustice is running rampant in the streets. From those who are oppressed because they are underprivileged to those who are oppressed because they hold to conservative values. Many leaders are corrupt and care only for their affluence and power at the expense of those below them. Money-making and covetousness rules. The lawmakers make laws for people, but they operate by a different set of laws themselves. Moral decline is at an all-time high. The family unit is being dismantled. Sexual immorality is at a crescendo. Murder is taking place in broad daylight. The sanctity of human life is no longer a valued conviction from the womb to the tomb. Authority and the rule of law are despised. Lawlessness is in the streets and it abounds. The rejection of God as creator and authority is rampant. The removal of absolute truths opens doors for dangerous ideologies and false gods. The worship of the true God has become shallow and nothing more than a sideshow for those who look in. The nation looks nothing like it did in her early days when she once recognized the sovereignty of God, when they recognized his truth and held a respect for others because they were created in the image of God. The country is prime for judgment. Now that piece I just read you, you may be surprised to know that the author wrote this piece about the people of Israel 2,770 years ago. How many of you thought I was talking about America this morning? I very well could. Because what the prophet Amos is dealing with in his day in 750 BC is no different than what we're struggling with 2,770 years later. And as I read that, the thing that is striking to me is the chilling parallel between the people of Israel 2,700 years ago and our contemporary society today. The other thing that struck me are two specific things that stand out. That the heart is still deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? The human heart, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, will always move towards sin and destruction. The second thing that stands out to me is that any nation 
that jettisons the kingdom principles of God and his word will ultimately lead to chaos and destruction. Today I'm beginning a new series on the book of Amos. And the book of Amos was written seven, uh, 2,770 years ago. And you might ask the question, why in the world are we going to be studying the book of Amos? This is an Old Testament prophet who spoke of the situation of what was happening in Israel. How can it possibly benefit us today? Well, what we will see is that God's word is timeless. And when God speaks to his people, whether it's Israel or whether it's to the church and believers in Jesus Christ today, his time, his word is always right. It's always truth regardless of the time, the circumstances, or the difficulties that we are going to face. So we're going to dig into the next eight weeks. We're going to look at these nine chapters written by a prophet 2,700 years ago. And as we begin to unpack this, we're going to learn some very practical truths that God has to speak to us this day. Now, if we're honest, most of us at best may have just read through the book of Amos. Probably very few of us have actually studied the book of Amos in any deep detail. And I must admit that I haven't as well. But I also have to admit that this is going to be a very difficult challenge for me as we unpack these verses for the next eight weeks. We're going to see that it's a challenge because the book of Amos basically is broken into four sections. There are the judgments that he gives to the nations. There are the sermons that he preaches. There are the visions that he sees. And then there's the hope that he declares. The tendency of this book is to be gloom and doom. It's a tendency to talk about difficulties, dark times, and maybe even feel a bit depressing. But as we look at this in the light of who we are in Christ, we see the hope that God has for us. We see his love as a father where he seeks to restore us regardless of the circumstances of our lives or of the day. So today we're going to begin this series in Amos, and we're only going to look at a few verses this morning. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We're also going to look at chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Now today I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of the book. And we're going to look at the man, we're going to look at the mission, and we're going to look at the message of the book of Amos. And then I'm going to give you some very practical pieces of information that we can take with us through this week. Now, as we begin, we want to set the scene for you. And as Amos writes in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says these words. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, it begins with the words of Amos. And this is written in about 750 B.C. Some of Amos' contemporaries, other prophets in that day, were Hosea and Jonah. You may remember Jonah in the belly of the fish. And so those two guys were on the scene, and they were prophets as well. Isaiah was a young prophet just beginning his ministry, and Micah was beginning his ministry as well. 
And it was during this time, two years before the great earthquake. Now, we don't know what the great earthquake is, but historians tell us that they believe it was the greatest earthquake that ever happened in the Middle East. And its epicenter was the Dead Sea. Zechariah, two years later, writes about this in his prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. Now, you need to know something a little bit about what was happening in the region in the day of Amos. And I have a map for you that may help you to see it. The kingdom was divided into two sections. There was Israel, which was known as the northern kingdom, and there's Judah, which is known as the southern kingdom. They have been divided for about 150 years. Judah and Israel are at animosity with each other. They're angry with each other. That's why when you read in the book of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you will always see that the king of Israel was this and the king of Judah was this. It was because they had their separate kingdoms. Now the king of Judah was Uzziah. Judah was known for having the most godly kings. In fact, they had all the godly kings. And Uzziah was a very godly king. He helped Judah in a time of prosperity and peace. He built up the military, and they were a force to be reckoned with. But they sought the Lord God. Then there was the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. And they had only wicked kings. In fact, every king they had was wicked. And Jeroboam II is the king during the days of Amos. And although he wasn't as wicked as the other kings, he was still wicked. He led the people into prosperity. He led the people into false worship. He led the people into creating two systems, those who were extremely rich and those who were extremely poor. And Israel was grieving the heart of God because of her idolatry and disobedience. This is what's happening in that day. Now, let's look at the man, Amos. We're going to begin by just kind of look at some things about him. We need to understand who he was before we can understand anything about the book. And he is, he's a fascinating man. But we don't know a lot about Amos. In fact, the only time Amos is ever mentioned in the Bible is in this book. He's never mentioned before the book of Amos. He's never mentioned after the book of Amos. We don't know who his father or mother were. We don't know if he had siblings. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We don't know anything about him in those areas. But there are a few things that we do know about him. Let's look at the map again. We know that he comes from a town called Tekoa. It's right here. It is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and it's located six miles from Bethlehem, which is another shepherd town. Tekoa was a little village, a farming village, out in the middle of nowhere. It was right on the edge of some of the most difficult terrain and desert territory. It was a shepherd's place. In fact, there were no trade routes going to Tekoa. Tekoa was so far out that you couldn't even get to Tekoa by accident. You have to want to be going to Tekoa to get to Tekoa. It's kind of like Burgal. You don't get there by accident. You have to want to be going to Burgal. And so this is where it is located. It is in the middle of nowhere. Now, his occupation is nothing to write home about. Amos tells us that he was a shepherd, but he doesn't use the word shepherd. He uses the word in the Hebrew, a sheep breeder. That's what he was. He was a sheep breeder. He bred sheep for a living. 
Now, the reason he didn't use the word shepherd, he didn't want to confuse the people to think that he was the spiritual leader of some sort. He wasn't. He was a businessman. He was a shepherd. He bred sheep. He was also a cattle man. We find in chapter 4 that he uses a lot of references about cattle. And so he was a farmer. He was a herdsman of sheep and of cattle. He was a well-known businessman, obviously, because he knew the current situations of the day. He knew the commerce of the day. He knew where the trade routes were. And he must have been a well-read man. Because if you look at his book, it is very stylistic. It has a lot of poetry in it. So he was a well-educated man in the sense of being able to write and to communicate. But he was, he was, he was what we would call a good old country boy. Being from Tekoa, he was not just a redneck. Tekoa was so far out, he was more of a burgundy neck. That's how far out he was. But we would consider him just to simply be a businessman. That's all. Now, now he wouldn't have, um, he wouldn't have um, been anything other than that. He would be what you and I would call a good old country boy. He's a good old country boy. After all, he's from the south. He's from Judah, right? He's a southerner, and he is just out in the country. I mean, I believe that Amos would have loved black-eyed peas and collard greens. He'd have been a guy that would have loved country fried steak and cornbread. And I have no doubt that he would have drank sweet tea from a little place called Smithfields. <laughs> but he was a country guy. Not real impressive by any nature. But we know a little bit more about him. Look at chapter 7 and beginning in verse 14. We find a little bit more about Amos. And he says this, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, he's a high priest, we're going to talk about him in a little bit. He says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Now he begins by saying, I'm not a prophet. I didn't go to the school of prophets. I'm not like Hosea. I'm not like Jonah. I'm not like Isaiah. I'm not like Micah. I am not a vocational prophet. I'm just a herdsman. That's all I am. I didn't have the training to be a spokesperson for God. But here I am, a herdsman. Then he uses an interesting phrase, a dresser of sycamore figs. Now, a sycamore fig was a very unusual fruit. It was eaten often by the poor because this was the kind of food that the poor could afford. Now, to prepare this fruit was rather tricky. You can't just eat sycamore figs as they are. They actually have to be pierced so that they can bleed. They actually have to be crushed so they can be softened. And you have to go through this tedious process of preparing the sycamore figs before anyone can ever eat them. And when you go through the process, it stains your hands. And so your hands are very stained from the work of working on sycamore figs. So what is he? He's a herdsman. He's a businessman. He's a dresser of sycamore figs. He's a man who's a country boy from a little town called Tekoa whose hands are stained from labor and tedious work. He could have held his own show called Dirty Jobs. That's who he was. As I said, he was not impressive. He did not come from a prestigious school. He doesn't have an impressive 
internship. He didn't work for a Fortune 500 company. His resume was not impressive, but his character was impeccable. If I can say anything to the church today about leadership, here's a warning to us. We too often want to look for the kinds of leaders that are the best communicators. The kinds of leaders who are the best at building a team and directing people. The kinds of leaders who can build systems and can create a polished working machine. And many times, we put character on the back burner. Now these things are important, but they're not as important as character is. Character is to be of the utmost importance. And sometimes we want to look at all the flashy points of a resume, but we hire a person or we see people who have been hired that are lacking in character. I've been reading a book these days by a man by the name of Lance Witt. And the book is called Replenish, and it has just blessed my soul. And he speaks a dire warning about this very thing. He says, we have neglected the fact that a pastor's greatest leadership tool is a healthy soul. Our concentration on skill and technique and strategy has resulted in de-emphasizing the interior life. The outcome is an interesting number of men and women leading our churches who are emotionally empty and spiritually dry. All you have to do is read the headlines every day and you find one other pastor falling, falling, falling. I want to tell you, we live in a time today of celebrity pastors. We live in a time of rock star pastors. We live in a time where, where they, they're very flamboyant, they're very flashy, and it seems like the more popular you are as a pastor, the more expensive your tennis shoes are. You know what I'm talking about, Tucker. But let me remind you, Ministry is a character vocation. It is a character vocation. And I would speak to any person in ministry or anticipating ministry. You can have a character flaw and be a great politician. In fact, we expect that to be the case, don't we? You can have a character flaw and be a great surgeon. You can have a character flaw and be a great CEO. But you cannot be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a major character flaw and be effective. So the reminder here is to us, is you don't have to have all that flash. But if you got character, then you are prime ready to be used by God. That's Amos. Nothing flashy, a herdsman, a fig picker, a man of impeccable character. What's his mission? Now let's look at his mission. His mission is told to us in chapter 7, verse 15. And he makes it very clear, and it's very simple. Look at verse 15. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. It's really interesting. This is an incredible passage. He says, The Lord took me. Amos did not volunteer for the position. This was not something that Amos wanted to do. He was a businessman. Amos didn't say, hey, 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 God, pick me, pick me. He says he took me from following the flock. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? It's a picture of picking up a little puppy by the nap of the neck and moving him from one place to the other. That's what he's saying. 
He said he took me and he put me into the ministry. There's no indication here that Amos had to go off on some retreat to seek the will of God. No, God sought his will in him. And what did God do? He put him in the ministry. Now, I want you to to, to think about Amos. He must have felt incredibly disqualified. I have no training. I'm not from the school of prophets. I don't have any of this experience. He could have pushed back on God. He could have said, now, God, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why don't you send Hosea? He's one of your men. He's a great spokesman. Why don't you send Jonah? He's a wonderful professional prophet. And God could have said to him, now, wait a minute, Amos. Hosea, he is doing his mission right now. And Jonah is currently in the belly of a fish. And you are my man. You are my man. And I'm sending you. And you know what Amos did that Jonah didn't do? He obeyed. He obeyed. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. The greatest mark of a godly man The greatest mark of a godly woman. The greatest mark of a godly teenager. The greatest mark of a godly young person is not all the flash and the accomplishments and the experiences of your life. The greatest mark is your obedience to God. There's nothing greater than that. And Amos obeyed. And he went Now, let me tell you why he felt maybe a little bit unqualified. Because of where he was supposed to go. God said, go prophesy to the people Israel. Remember, Israel and Judah are separated. They're at odds with one another. There's animosity. The people in the nation of Israel despise the people of Judah. And here is Amos, a southern businessman, told to go up north and prophesy to those northerners in Israel but he did and we find that he obeyed and he went now where did he go he went to a town called Bethel Bethel was the capital of the nation of Israel it was a very affluent city everybody who was someone belonged in Bethel and the king lived in Bethel. The high priest lived in Bethel. The, 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 the socialites lived in Bethel. The sophisticated people lived in Bethel. We find that the elite of the culture lived in Bethel. And they were very wealthy. They were very set apart. And here's this country boy going to Bethel. That would be equivalent to someone from the south going to preach against the sins of Washington, D.C., And he went, and he obeyed. Now, what happened when he got there? Here's what happened. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, prophet, 
Go flee away to the land of Judah. Go back to your country home and eat the bread there. Probably meant cornbread. And prophesy there. But never again prophesied Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. They hated him. They despised him. He goes and he speaks obediently before the Lord. He is unloved. He is unwanted. He is unappreciated. He is undermined. But let me tell you what he wasn't. He wasn't intimidated. And why wasn't he intimidated? Not only was he God's man for God's time, but he knew that his job was not to be liked. His job was not to be appreciated. His job was not to be applauded. His job was to be heard. And boy, was he ever heard. Forty times in this book, he says, Thus saith the Lord. And the people were covering their ears. They couldn't bear it anymore. They could hear the ringing of God's words in their ears every day. They can hear the consequences if they do not turn. And they knew the judgment that was awaiting them because of his obedience and his impeccable character. The people heard the truth. I'm telling you, what God is looking for today are men and women who were not just obedient to him, but men or women who were bold enough to speak up for him. Too often we want to fit in more than we want to speak truth. Too often we want to be liked more than it is to speak God's word. Too often we want to protect our investments in this culture, forgetting that the very people we're afraid to share the truth with are the people who need it most. And what God is looking for are men and women who are willing to speak up. Do you realize that we're living in a culture today that our culture says the only sin is to say that there is sin? That's the culture we're living in. We're living in a culture today that says the only truth is that there is no truth. The culture that we're living in today is saying the only liberation we need is to be liberated from God and Jesus and the church. And God is calling his people to speak. Not to be liked, not to be applauded, but to be heard. It's an issue of an impeccable character of obedience that speaks the truth of what God wants people to hear. That's his mission. That was the man. Now, let's look at the message. The message is incredible. The message is just a, not just a message of judgment and wrath that's going to be coming. But what we see through the, the whole message is restoration from the heart of a father who loves his people. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he continues, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He's talking about a roaring lion. Let me tell you, what, was, what would struck fear in people's hearts and minds during those days was the roar of a lion. When they heard a roaring lion in the bush 
or in the brush or in the wilderness. Fear struck them because they knew it was a formidable foe and that danger was imminent. The shepherds and the farmers stood and only could watch as a lion would come and destroy their cattle and their sheep. There was nothing they could do. But the picture here is the picture of God as the lion. But he's not coming to rip and destroy. He is roaring for the purpose of restoring his people in a relationship with him. Do you hear the goodness and the kindness of God in that? He's wanting to restore the people who have been in sin and who have drifted away. We find it all through the pages of this book. And so as he is seeking to restore them, they are running from him. In chapter 4, we find constantly through this, this chapter that they would not seek and would not return to the Lord. After all God did for them, in verse 4, you did not return from me. Verse 6, you did not return from me. Verse 8, you did not return to me. Verse 9, 10, and 11, you did not return to me. And the culmination of that comes in verse 12, where he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this. You prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You've heard movies in the past, prepare to meet your maker. You've heard people say that, prepare to meet your maker. It sounds really tough. That originated from the lips of God to Amos to the people of Israel. He's not talking just to the nations that's surrounding them. We're going to find out next week that there are no exceptions when it comes to the judgment of God. But what he's talking about is even his own people. Listen carefully. His own people can incur the judgment of God if they refuse to listen to his warnings and heed to his message. And you might say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. And that's a comforting verse for any believer to know that no matter what I do, I will never be condemned because of the work of Christ in my life. But Paul did not say there is therefore now no consequences for your sin. We are forgiven. God removes our sins from us as people of God, but rarely does he remove the consequences from our sinful choices. They not only impact up, but they impact generations to come. And that's the message. Sin is serious. You can grieve the heart of your father. And if you continue to drift into sin, when there are clear warnings from the Spirit of God in you, there will be consequences. And those consequences will impact generations to come. But then in chapter 5, he gives the remedy. He says three times, return to me. Seek me and you will live. Seek the Lord and you will live. Seek good and not evil and you shall live. And then in chapter 9, he brings it as a culmination. And he says in a promise, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And here's what God says. Even though you will disobey me, even though you will go into captivity, even though my judgment is going to fall on you, I am going to restore you. 
And I am going to rebuild. And I am going to provide redemption for all humanity. And we see the picture of Jesus Christ at the end of the book. The man. The mission. The message. Now what is it in all of this that God wants to restore in us today? Let me just give you three things that I believe that there's a roar to restore. And it's to restore our calling. Three things that I want to leave you with today. Number one. God uses obedient people to accomplish his work. God uses obedient people to accomplish his work. You don't have to be schooled. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible college. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek. You don't have to have a big social media platform. You don't have to have a number of people who follow you on Facebook or Instagram. You don't have to be bright. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be brilliant. You have to be obedient. You don't have to even be a man. You can be a spokesperson for God as a woman, as a child, as a teenager. You don't even have to be a pastor. You can, don't have to have a seminary degree. You may have never seen the inside of a seminary or a Bible college. Maybe you don't have a college degree. Maybe you don't even have a high school degree. You just have to be obedient. And God uses obedient people to accomplish his work. And here's the warning today. Some of you focus more on your insecurities than you do your obedience to the Father. And God is saying to you, don't miss out on the blessings that I have for you. Because in Christ Jesus, you are more than enough. Because in Christ Jesus, I have given you everything you need for life and for godliness. You step out in faith. You obey me. You watch me do the work. Before I came here, I was pastoring a church in Graceville, Florida. The church was flourishing. It was growing. We were getting ready to add a second service to that. Then I got a call from the pastor of this church asking me to come to Wilmington to be a student pastor. I didn't want to go back into student ministry. I've done that most of my life. I wanted to pastor. And Chris and I prayed about this and it made no sense to us. But we came because it was the obedient thing to do. And I'm so glad we did. Be obedient to whatever he's calling you to. Step out. Trust him. Put aside your insecurities because he's greater than all of those things. Secondly, some of God's choicest instruments come from obscure places. I love this. Some of God's choicest instruments come from obscure places, places where people think God could never use people from. I think of some of the great men who have preached through the history of time who did not have great schooling. I think of A.W. Tozer. I think of D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, even C.H. Spurgeon, J. Vernon McGee, if any of you remember him. And yet they were some of the great spokesmen for God. Incredible. Do you know, it might be interesting for you to know, that most of the preachers in America will be unknown and preach to only a handful of people every week. Some of the greatest preachers in America 
Preach to crowds of less than 200 every single week. 80% of the pastors in the United States preach to congregations less than 200 in number. 20% preach to those above 200. And only 2% preach to people 1,000 and more. And yet God is using all of those people. And they are in the most obscure places that you and I can never even know. You know, I believe some of God's choicest instruments are in this room right now. I believe some of God's choicest instruments are sitting in their living rooms with their parents. I believe some of God's choicest instruments come from the most obscure places. And I believe that many of you who are parents don't even recognize that you are rearing the leaders of tomorrow. And you don't even know it. You tuck them in at night. You say a prayer over them. And God is preparing them and is about to propel them in the future of great leaders for the kingdom of God. Some of you are in jobs and you figure this is a dead end place. What impact can I per ever make for the kingdom of God? You might consider yourself to be in, in an obscure company nobody knows about. But the people that you model Christ to and the obedience that you walk in and the declaration of the gospel that you are sharing with the people around you can never be measured. And those individuals are impacted for eternity because of that obscure little cubicle in a business that nobody knows, but God does. You might be in a school and you think, where is this taking me? I don't like this degree. I don't know where I'm going. And yet God is using all of these things to form and fashion something in you that you can never even dream that he would do. Some of his choicest instruments are in obscure places. Here's the last one. God always warns before he judges. Always. The gracious nature of our Heavenly Father is that he warns us before he brings judgment and consequences. This is true of both believers and non-believers. Some of you here this morning as believers, you have been running from God. You are living in an area of sin and rebellion in your life. And you know it. And God has been speaking to you through his Holy Spirit. He's been warning you about the broken fellowship that you're experiencing. He's warning you of the consequences that are going to come if you continue in that sin. He is warning you of what the enemy wants to rob from your life. And you're not listening. But he's talking. Listen to him. Because the consequences that come always affect the epicenter the most. It's like a rock in a pond. The greatest ripples are where the rock hits, but it spreads through the whole pond. And some of your families are in danger because of your disobedience. And you don't even know it. And God is warning. And he's saying, I love you. Seek me and you will live. Some of you are not believers. And you've heard the message of the gospel your whole life or maybe in these recent days. And you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And you try to justify your life by calling yourself good and you know you're not, and you try to justify your life by saying, you know what, I'll do it later. I want to have my fun now, but let me just tell you, 
As God continues to bring to you the truth of the gospel and you continue to push it away, every single day you are walking away from the grace of God and my friend, one day God's grace will run out. Because one day you will stand before him and you will have no excuse, none. And he's calling you to repent. The message of Amos is very applicable, isn't it? And it's applicable to where we are. And God's heart is to restore. So here's my encouragement as you walk this week. Listen to his voice, believer. Put away your insecurities and walk in obedience. Speak truth in a culture that doesn't want truth. Do not limit yourself because of where you've come from or what you've experienced. God's blessings are far greater than that. Hear the warning of God today. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we go through this study in the days ahead that you would soften our hearts. Soften our hearts, Father, to understand your incredible love for us and your incredible compassion for us and your patience with us and your incredible grace in our lives. Father, may we be the kind of men and women that bless your heart because we are obedient. We're men and women of impeccable character. And Father, we let not the things around us stop us from what you would have us do. Father, as we go through these weeks in this study, may you give me wisdom as I communicate with my own heart and with your people that, Father, we will never be the same. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.